Welcome to the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast. I'm John Hartley, your host. Thanks so much for joining us. Today we have Kyle Houtman, who is the Vice Chair for the National Credit Union Administration, as our guest. Welcome, Kyle. Thank you. The National Credit Union Administration, um, for those uh, who aren't uh, aware, is the regulator and public insurer of America's 5,000 credit unions, which have nearly 140 million members, it's about half the U.S. population. Uh, before uh, uh, being appointed uh, uh, vice chair, uh, he, uh, Kyle, previously worked for Senator Tom Cotton on the Senate Banking Committee staff, where he ran the Economic Policy Subcommittee. And before that, he worked at various think tanks and on Wall Street. Uh, again, welcome, Kyle. Uh, so glad uh, to have you with us. I want to open this up. Um, you know, how did you get interested in finance and economic policy to begin with? Uh, to begin with, uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, your background and, and how you got interested in all of this. Yeah. Uh, so I was always interested in politics. I grew up in a fairly lefty family. My parents were political, and always loved politics and policy. Wound up working in Wall Street and in the interest rate area, short end bonds trading, that sort of thing, the repo markets, where what you focus on is geopolitical events and, you know, government things and central banks versus like if you worked in stocks, you'd be talking a lot about various companies, right? Mm -hmm. Anyway, I wound up in 2008 with Lehman Brothers when it collapsed and my interest in policy was rekindled because... There was a policy angle to all that, if you remember. We were sitting there at Lehman, you know, when it was all falling apart, and there was no way for, at that time, an international investment bank to restructure in bankruptcy. You know, restructuring in the bankruptcy code is one of the best things about America, American business. A lot of airlines have gone through it, some more than once, et cetera. And it was kind of a game of chicken with the Bush administration. Um, our friends at Bear Stearns had had a quasi bailout a few months earlier. Uh, the government stepped in to help them merge with J.P. Morgan and over a weekend and on Monday, life sort of went on for a while. But they wanted to do, and I understand this, the Bush administration didn't want to bail somebody out and it is Lehman's management responsibility to steer clear of the iceberg, right? This is on them um, and nobody else. But at the time, because it was an investment bank, Lehman couldn't access cheap money through the Fed discount window and the bankruptcy code was not well suited for it. Some of your uh, Stanford colleagues historically have worked on what they call chapter 14, I guess, of right? Of course, uh, John Taylor. Yeah, 100%. Um, so anyway, not only was it a company and being, you know, going under, which it did, I was with them when they collapsed, there was a policy interest in it. So when I had an opportunity a few years later, uh, I was out in Japan, I was in Tokyo, and I left my position there and moved to Boston to work for Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. And this was 2011, and then obviously he won the primary, so that was cool, but then he lost the general to Barack Obama. And I, my one-year kind of experiment in policy and politics, I really enjoyed it. But instead of coming to D.C. as a member of the new Romney administration, I decided to move to D.C. and look for a job. Well, that's great. You know, landing, I'd say, at the you know, Senate Banking Committee staff, I'd say uh, uh, it's, it's certainly uh, you know fantastic um, experience. Uh, in addition to um, spending a, a whole year uh, working as uh, an economic policy advisor on a, on a presidential campaign, uh, no, no less one that uh, won its own uh, primary is um, fantastic experience. So, 
Uh, this brings us to uh, you becoming vice chair of the NCUA. Can you explain to us um, what the N- NCUA uh, does um, and, and what um, explicitly what a credit union technically is, how it's different from uh, a regular bank, um, and how they started, how credit unions started in, in the U.S.? Yeah, uh, and just to be clear on that, uh, regarding Senate banking, the chairman was Mike Crabo, and I did not work for his staff, but my boss, Senator Cotton, was uh, chair of one of the subcommittees. Ah, okay. So I ran that economic policy subcommittee. We had some cool hearings uh, that I know you'd like. Uh, credit unions are very much like banks, except they are nonprofits, and the difference is not anyone can join one. You have to have what's called a field of membership. They originally started with mill workers, where the group of employees came together and they deposited their paychecks, and then they got loans from that pool of money. They were uh, came from Quebec originally, and oh. some Quebecois folks came over to New Hampshire, and that's where the first one was founded. Wow. It's funny because you're from Maine. That's right. Yeah. Maine's the only state that only borders one state, borders New Hampshire. Ah, that, that's fantastic. That's, that's so fascinating uh, that... Um, it's not that fascinating. Well, you'd be born in Maine, and, and <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, sure. uh, you know, things come full circle here. Um, so, so there's over 5,000 uh, of them in the U.S., and, and it covers uh, – uh, there's over 5,000 credit unions in the U.S., and, and about 140 million uh, uh, people or Americans have – or members at some sort of yep. credit union. They you know, very well could have bank accounts elsewhere. Um, explain to me, how does an, an account at a, a credit union sort of differ from like a regular bank account? The main thing is field of membership. And that they are nonprofit institutions. So, a group of people, like for example, the Disney employees have their own credit union. Uh, American Airlines does. Um, the biggest one is Navy Federal, which is friends and family of, sorry, not friends and family, family and members of the military, then their families, right? So, that's the largest one. And in theory, the customer service and is a little better because you have a commonality. That's the notion behind it, okay? And I'm not here to knock other financial institutions like small town banks who also probably provide good community service. But in theory, you're gonna get better rates because people pay their loans back a little bit more than they would other loans because there's a commonality. Because you'd be uh, hurting a fellow employee of your company or a fellow member of the armed services or something like that. So they have their own regulator which is NCUA, which provides insurance uh, identical to that of FDIC for banks. Got it. So it's basically a credit union is like a nonprofit kind of community bank. It's a cooperative. It's exactly a cooperative. Right. It's a cooperative model. They don't have customers. They don't have members. They don't have shareholders. That field of membership, I should mention, they collectively own it. Got it. So it's owned by the members. It's, it's a cooperative. So you're sort of both a depositor and a partial owner. You so bet. if there's excess profits... You get that back in some you get form of a, a dividend. A, kind a, of. Something that's very much like a dividend. They call it, you know, just a distribution that is taxable income, just like a dividend, and they send it back to the members. So everybody, uh, if there's excess money to be spent, every member of the credit union gets a, a piece of that. Got it. And the NCUA is like the FDIC yep. for credit unions, uh, which you are the vice chair of. Um, and so this is fascinating. So. And I think there's some other um, limits as well, like in the sense, or some other small differences between credit unions and banks. There's some limits on how much they can invest. That's uh, right. Th- there's some other uh, rules like this. But um, in, in terms of the NCUA and its role, 
it acts as an insurer, a regulator, uh, a bit of a liquidity provider as well. It, it has a, a discount window um, uh, uh, type function as well. So in, in many respects, it's kind of um, fulfilling both sort of what the function of the FDIC does on, on the insurer side of things and then also kind of what the Federal Reserve does in some respects. And, you bet. In yeah. both in being a regulator and a liquidity so provider. When I came in a year and a half ago, at the end of this, uh, I was confirmed right at the tail end of the Trump administration, December 2020. At the time, there were about 5,500 credit unions. It's now dipped to just under 5,000. That group of 5,000 American credit unions is about 3,000 federal charters, where we at NCUA are their regulator and insurer. And then the other 2,000 are state charters, where their state government is their regulator. And then we are just their insurer. Got it. That, uh, that, that's fascinating. So, so some of these credit unions have uh, state charters, some have federal charters. Yeah, some states don't allow it. There's a handful of states that don't allow state charters. They just never enacted their own credit union act, in which case they only have uh, federal charters. But there's about 45, I believe, 45 states that have a state charter. Um, and in that case, you have the option in those states of pursuing a federal charter or a state charter, and you'd, you'd be, uh, in either way, you'd be insured by NCUA. Got it, got it. And, and so the things that are sort of often like things on credit union balance sheets are, are often things like mortgages and, and car loans. That's pretty much it. And there's yeah. some limits to so, actual yeah. investments. It's, and, and it's so a very, credit unions are very main street in the sense, car loans and home loans. That's what they do. That's what 85% of the total assets. Um, you know, they can put excess cash in other things. They can buy treasuries or something. But pretty much they do that. They have, in return for their nonprofit status, some restrictions. Now, some of the credit unions advocate to remove all those restrictions, but at that point you're a bank and, you know, then you're, then, then be a bank. Uh, but they have limits on their business lending, et cetera. But by the way, uh, if you remember the, obviously the pandemic when it started the PPP loans, Congress did exempt credit unions from that business cap in order to get those PPP loans out. But essentially, credit unions are cooperatives that make car loans and home loans. Okay, fascinating. And, and so NCUA, it, it's kind of like the Fed in, in the sense that you have like governors um, who are you know full time, um, in, in that uh, you have six year terms. Yeah. Um, and you know, un, unlike uh, the Fed and, and also like the CFTC and SEC and other regulators, um, you have only uh, three. Uh, only three members, right, who, who uh, chaired the a, NCUA. In 1970, when they created a separate independent regulator, that's us, NCUA, so it's only existed since 1970. I'm only the 40th person to ever serve uh, on, on the three-member board. Yeah, they set up with three, and we have staggered six-year terms uh, because the president is a Democrat. That means the chair, uh, my colleague Todd Harper, I get along with him well, he is the chairman of the NCUA, and the other two of us uh, are not the chair. <laughs> got it. Got it. Um, that's um, that, that's so fascinating. And um, so, I, I guess um, explain to us, you know, what has been your um, mandate at the NCUA, and, and what what has been your top priorities uh, since coming in as, vi as vice chair? Yeah, uh, you know, those are two kind of two separate questions. One is the mandate is the same for anybody in my position. During my time, the absolute most important thing is to protect the safety and soundness of the system, which is another way of saying, protect our $20 billion insurance fund. Just like FDIC, 
when people deposit money, a piece of that comes to us in one manner or another. The FDIC does it differently than NCUA does, but a piece of it comes to NCUA. A little bit of that pays for me, management, and the rest of it's in a fund. And it's only in treasury securities, so it doesn't earn a whole lot of money. That's, that's one issue these days. Uh, but on the other hand, treasuries do well when there's a crisis, which is when you need your insurer, okay? So my main thing is protecting the safety and soundness of our $20 billion insurance fund, okay? So there's about $2 trillion in assets, and call it 1% of that is in our fund. So we keep about, similar to FDIC, we keep about 1% in, you know, sitting there in treasuries ready to pay out depositors if there's a collapse. That's the absolute number of run. We're also, like I said, uh, we're the insurer for almost all 5,000. There's a few states that have private insurance. It's kind of interesting. But then we're also the regulator for, call it, 60% of the credit unit. So my mandate's the same as everybody's mandate. Steer the system, protect that insurance fund. And when I came in, in 2020, you know, we were still in, you know, the first nine months of the pandemic. Uh, actually, and when I was uh, officially nominated in June 2020, that was very close to March 2020 when everything happened. I thought uh, we were going to be dealing, we might be dealing with a massive downturn. And if you remember, we did lose 20 million jobs in one month of April 2020. Right. You know, the, the financial crisis, the worst month ever was 800,000. Right. So we didn't, but because of the massive monetary and fiscal response, we didn't have a massive downturn. We lost all those jobs, but as you know, a lot of money was spread around to a lot of people. Uh, people like me refinanced their mortgage, and so we didn't have that. But but it didn't change the fact uh, we now deal with the hangover from all that, so to speak, which is like a lot of the world we have excess inflation. So my the mandate, my priorities were born from working in the Senate and working with regulators. And one problem regulators have in this country and a lot of places is generally they are monopolies. They produce not the best products at not the best prices. They're not exposed to market forces. So I, all the time when I worked in the Senate, you'd have somebody call and say, my regulator, you know, you can pick one. I only dealt with the financial regulators, but there's seven or so, depending on how you define it. They did this, they're not supposed to do that. And I would say, uh, all right, well, who'd you talk to? Who was the examiner? And they get real quiet because they're terrified that they're gonna look like they're telling on the regulator and they're gonna retaliate. Or I would say, Oh, can you send me what you have? An email, a text, a document, you know? And they'd say, no, everything was verbal. And I was like, oh, was it recorded? No, we're not allowed to. So all these frustrations. So how do you fix that problem, right? If, if you're, you're work, talking to a constituent, you're in the House or the Senate, you're trying to help these people with their problems with their regulator. Right. First problem, the core cancer in the system is people aren't communicating clearly because they're afraid of them. It's, I, I compare it to when you get pulled over by a cop, you may not like the officer's attitude, but you're not gonna say anything unless something really extreme happens. If it's me, I say, yes, officer, you're right, officer, because I just wanna get out of this and they have a badge and a gun and I don't. So trying to break that down, that's been a huge priority for me. Um, I can tell you my three and we can go through yeah. them if you want. One was how hard it is to start a new credit union. We call it the Novo. Uh, that process was way too difficult. And I think that's a, a key part of financial inclusion. People should be able to, reasonable, should expect a reasonable process if they want to start uh, a new credit union in their area. Second one was what I was just getting at, which is I would call modernized service. We've now installed Uber and Lyft style automatic for both parties. 
you know, uh, surveys, which I think communicate priorities, that sort of thing for a federal credit union. Again, that's about 60%. You can record your exit, uh, you know, after your exam, when they give you the findings, which I think is just flat out useful. Right. Uh, the same way if you call American Airlines, you know, uh, this call is monitored for quality assurance. Even my local government here in District of Columbia, which is nobody's idea of enlightened governance, it says this call, you know, they're recorded and I can record it too. So this stuff is just very useful, right? Um, and then the third one is blockchain and crypto, uh, which is another part of modernization that I don't want credit unions to go the way of blockbuster video because their regulator wouldn't let them. The same way the internet fundamentally changed how credit unions do things 25 years ago. Some of us think that this new technology, distributed ledger blockchain, may do the same uh, like the internet did. Got it, got it. That was long, sorry about that. No, 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 that's, that's fascinating. I mean, it, it seems really interesting um, you know, how uh, some regulators are, are dealing with sort of the rise of crypto banks. I know uh, there's a, a new form of um, uh, a crypto uh, state bank charter in um, uh, in uh, Wyoming. Yeah, you know, Wyoming, Wyoming and Texas have tried to be sort of ahead on this stuff. Right. I think Wyoming actually was the first state to start mm -hmm. the LLC. I think they sort of okay. it was like based on Panamanian yeah. law and so forth. The idea of you know pass through and income in, in LLC. So I think they're trying to sort of innovate uh, again by, I think these things are called speedies or something like that. Uh, I, I forget the exact acronym, um, but it's interesting because, you know, there's, uh, it seems like there's a lot of um, other debate around, for example, whether, you know, various fintech firms, uh, which may be in sort of the crypto or I guess DeFi um, sort of um, world, um, access to things like FedMaster accounts and so forth. So it seems like there's a lot of um, regulatory um, emphasis right now or attention from the regulatory community on, on how to uh, adapt uh, uh, the existing um, uh, financial system uh, to uh, a world where um, people may uh, have a, a preference for uh, some uh, cryptocurrency. I'm curious, like, you know, th thinking back to like 08 and even 2020 of last year uh, or of, of two years ago, um, you know, we did see, you know, I guess runs on uh, money market mutual funds both times. We didn't see uh, bank runs the most recent go around since you know, we had these uh, uh, capital rules that were passed uh, uh, in, as part of the Dodd-Frank Act and, and uh, banks uh, had uh, uh, greater amounts of, uh, of capital on the um, equity side of their, their balance sheet. Um, but I'm curious, like, um, has, and of course, the, you know, the FDIC after 2008, they upped their threshold uh, on, um, on the amount of FDIC insurance each account gets from like 100,000 to 250,000. I'm curious, like, how, has, how have credit unions um, fared throughout this, um, uh, you know, this 2008, 2000, uh, 2020 sort of eras? Have they given that um, they're, you know, invested in uh, things like, uh, you know, mortgages and car loans that they're you know pretty safe during these periods of, of high stress um uh, or uh do you see um during these periods that you know a, a number of credit unions um experience runs or or, or issues like that yeah or so i've only been there since the end of 2020 so and like i said i was at uh, lehman when the last crisis happened uh, but you make a point that american financial policy right or wrong is often made via disaster you know, FDIC insurance was created because of the Great Depression. The SEC was created 
in the Great Depression. The financial crisis, like you said, boosted everyone's deposit insurance at the FDIC and NCUA from 100,000 to 250. And we can go on at you know, various other problems that have created uh, policy. For whatever reason, we tend to react to, to, to disasters and create policy. Um, so far, right now, credit unions are doing well. Um, they had a surge in deposits, obviously, with all the stimulus programs, CARES Act. So that was almost uh, an issue for them because it looks like our their level of capital goes down. It's just the way the math works if they don't put it to work. And then our share insurance fund looks like it doesn't have quite enough money because we're insuring lots of more money out there, right? Right. People weren't spending money uh, if you, in March and April. And then there was the stimulus checks and then the expanded unemployment, et cetera. Um, the refi boom is over. The one thing that I think about is not so much home loans because people have a fair amount of equity right now. It's not like 2008, you know, mm -hmm. um, where it was very easy to go underwater. If you had a no money down mortgage, it's very easy to be underwater. Right. hundred percent LTV so, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and so some parts of the country may have real estate declines. Fair enough. But there's a healthy chunk of equity, meaning we shouldn't have tons of foreclosures. If you lose your job, if, if we go into a slowdown, right, and people debate, are we in a recession, are we going into one? You know, eventually you have a slowdown no matter what. It feels like people will just sell their home rather than go through foreclosure. Foreclosure is a nightmare. And you shouldn't have situations like you did in, you know, Phoenix in 2009, where you owe 500000 on a $300,000 house. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. But car loans are an issue. But car prices spiked, if you probably noticed, last right. couple of years. Absolutely. The used car phenomenon is uh, a big uh, component of CPI's uh, mm -hmm. rise in, in at least Just halfway in, in 2021. I remember 2021, from January to October, the average price of a used car went from twenty two to 29000 uh, That's a remarkable jump. And so, you know, uh, car payments are really high. So what I'm trying to get at is, Right now, my number one concern is car loans. Not so much home equity, even though that's a, a, a home loans. Because I feel like the vast majority of people, if they can't afford their mortgage, have equity and they will just sell it and you don't have a foreclosure at that point. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So I, I guess like on, a, um, on an ordinary sort of basis, like... Um, Credit union types of like issue, you know, insolvencies or, or runs are, are must be pretty rare or, or relatively infrequent. Yeah, I mean, luckily they are. Um, they do. So when they're in trouble, what we do as a regulator and insurer is well, you want to avoid that first of all. That's what your role as an insurer and a regulator is. Right. But it happens, and we. Try to find a solution that doesn't involve writing a check. We're an insurance company and no insurance company likes writing checks. You have to because that's your role, but you want to avoid it. Uh, just like every insurer ever. So we'll conserve them. We'll have to take them over. It's kind of like a state takeover, you know, uh, of it. And it's called conservatorship. Sometimes they can be rescued with some money and put back to health. Or sometimes they just collapse. Somebody else may buy whatever assets they have. Uh, and so the worst case scenario for us is somebody had 50 grand in the bank, it's gone, and we have to write a check to that credit union member 
to make them whole on that money. That's how the system works. That's the number one thing we want to avoid. And you know, why do institutions collapse? Because they make bad investments. Because people don't pay back their loans in some manner. Or put this way, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, a bad investment at the time. The reality is, if everybody stops paying their bills, a lot of people are in a lot of trouble. Got it. That that's uh, fascinating. Um, yeah, to to think. Um, you know, I, I think about, uh, you know, Treasury buying uh, or putting Fannie and Freddie into a conservatorship mm-hmm. in, uh, in in 2008. And of the course, they too big to fail institutions. Yes. And of course, they still are in conservatorship. Isn't that amazing? I would never have thought that back yeah. then. 14 years later, there would still be wards of the state. Absolutely. Well, I, I guess it's, it's all about uh, trying to manufacture uh, risk-free assets um, uh, in the mortgage-backed security side of things. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, I guess, on that side, you know, we've got this new capital rule um, for Fannie and Freddie and, and uh, uh, that um, is in, in part trying to uh, reduce the risk on Fannie and Freddie's um, uh, balance sheet. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if that ever changes. I think there's a lot of people would argue that, uh, uh, you know, uh, even despite uh, the best attempts of Mark Calabria and, and, and many in that era um, at, at FHA, um, they, they still weren't able to uh, uh, to quite uh, make it happen, um, but um, we'll, we'll, we'll have to uh, stay tuned and, and uh, see what happens. Well, Kyle, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real uh, pleasure to have you on uh, uh, the um, Capitalism and Freedom podcast here. Again, uh, our guest today has been Kyle Hauptman, who's the vice chair of the National Credit Union Administration. Thanks so much, Kyle, for joining us. And uh, thanks so much to all our listeners uh, for joining in. Uh, Again, this is your host, John Hartley. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us.